Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. The following on podcast is proudly sponsored by Barbados Tourism. Before we kick off the show, I just wanted to take a moment to remind you that the ICC Men's Cricket T20 World Cup final is taking place in Barbados this summer. This, by default, gives all of my fellow cricket fanatics the perfect excuse to go and book a holiday to Barbados in June and experience firsthand the euphoric atmosphere at the Kensington Oval, the cricket mecca of the Caribbean. If the cricket alone isn't enough to tempt you, then let me be the one to remind you that a trip to Barbados can also include leisurely strolls along the breathtaking coastline, mouth-watering flavours of the world-class Bayesian cuisine, and, of course, plenty of rum. Head to visitbarbados.org forward slash cricket today to book the trip of a lifetime to Barbados, the best place to be a cricket fan. Hello and welcome to a very special edition of the following on podcast. I'm John Norman, uh, bringing you an archived edition of the brilliant My Sporting Life. In this episode, Talk Sports Danny Kelly sits down with the West Indies legend Michael Holding to discuss his remarkable career both on and off the pitch. And we will be releasing old editions of My Sporting Life every Friday here on Following On. Huge names like Curtly Ambrose, Clive Lloyd and Sir Richard Hadley all to come. So keep an eye out for those in the coming weeks. But for now, after he announced his retirement from the commentary box this week, let's bring you my sporting life with the great Michael Holding. Taking centre stage on tonight's My Sporting Life is one of the most fearsome bowlers in Test Match cricket history, the West Indies great Michael Holding. He's out, LBW this time. There's a danger man holding. And he's bowling. Played on. A very, very good Yorker, that one. I would, that's a good piece of bowling from holding. And he's bowling. So holding strokes again. My Sporting Life on Talk Sport. Over the course of the next two hours, we'll hear about being reduced to tears while playing for West Indies. I went out to a perhaps extra cover somewhere around there and I knelt down and the tears came to my eyes. I think it was Lance Gibbs who ran over to me from God. Bless him. <laughs> and said, Mikey, you have to continue. And <laughs> Kicking the stumps while playing against New Zealand. And he looks at the umpire and the umpire just shakes his head. So he just stood there and put the glove back on. And when I saw that, I just, I just saw red. I... The mist came down, as they said. And the impact the West Indian cricket team had on the Caribbean nations. When the West Indies did it, oh, we are brutal. And that's spoiling the game. That's not cricket. Perhaps we were just up before our time. On DAB Digital Radio and 1089 and 1053 AM. My Sporting Life on Talk Sport. 
Yes, Michael Anthony Holding, born the 16th of February 1954 at Halfway Tree in Kingston, Jamaica. Michael's one of the greatest and most fearsome fast bowlers in the history of Test cricket. A reputation gained for his performances in the legendary West Indies side that dominated the sport throughout the 70s and 80s. In 60s tests for the West Indies, he took 249 wickets, including 14 for 149 against England at the Oval in the summer of 1976. The finest match figures ever by a West Indian. He's also remembered for arguably the most ferocious over ever in Test cricket against Geoffrey Boycott at the Kensington Oval in 1981 when he smashed the English batsman's wicket with a six ball. While in the one-day international arena, he took 142 wickets in 102 appearances and was a member of the West Indies side which won the World Cup in 1979. He also represented Jamaica, Lancashire, Tasmania, Derbyshire and Canterbury in first-class cricket and after retiring from playing, playing side of the game in 1989, he's forged a highly successful media career as a respected cricket commentator as well as spending time as an ICC official. On TalkSport this evening, I'm joined by the cricket legend, the man nicknamed Whispering Death, my favourite bowler of all time, Michael Holding. You were born and grew up in the capital of uh, Jamaica, Kingston. What kind of childhood did you have? Well, I'd have to say, Danny, I had a very happy childhood in that I was allowed to play all sorts of sports. And, you know, as a young man, you're playing sports, you're outdoors, most of the time you're enjoying life. You know, we didn't have any restrictions as to what time of the day we could go out, especially during the summer holidays. You know, my parents were sports-loving people. My father played football, he played cricket. My mother did athletics, she played table tennis. I have three elder siblings, all of them played sports. So, you know, it was a sporting family and we were allowed to play sport and enjoy ourselves. Many years ago, in a, in a lifetime far, far away, I was a music journalist and I got to go to Kingston and to Jamaica several times. And uh, back in, the, in, the, in those days, um, one could see Kingston particularly, it was both areas of great poverty and also some very beautiful tree-lined middle-class streets. Um, where was your family in all of that? Well, my parents met in downtown Kingston at Kingston Parish Church. My father was an altar boy and my mother was in the choir at Kingston Parish Church. So they grew up downtown. Coronation Market, don't know if you heard about Coronation Market. My father used to accompany his father to Coronation Market because he sold down there and he used to accompany him and helping with his goods that he was selling. My mother grew up on Luke Lane, again downtown Kingston. But by the time I came along, my my parents were then living halfway tree, Dunrobin Avenue. So they had pretty much bettered themselves. Mm-hmm. They had moved out of downtown Kingston. They were living in Halfway Tree on Dunrobin Avenue. And of course, I was the fourth of the four, four kids. So by the time I came along, they had pretty much settled and they were a little bit more comfortable in life. Do you so like- I'll, so, sorry, Danny. Uh, so although I didn't get everything I wanted, I got what I needed. So I was never really in need. Um, did you love school? Yeah, I enjoyed school. As a matter of fact, when I left KC, which was the high school that I went to, I was sad. <laughs> I enjoyed my school life. Did and I spent a lot of time at KC and had a great time. Did you do Did you do school work? So many sportsmen I speak to, they seem to have spent all their time just dreaming about playing cricket, football, whatever, rugby, whatever it is, um, and, not, and, and neglecting their studies. I neglected my studies to a degree, yes. I enjoyed life too much at school. By the time I got to KC, I, I was 10 years old when I went to KC, and I had gotten a, a scholarship to go to KC. I had done well enough to get a scholarship to go to KC. So I was doing okay at, as a kid. And then I, when I got to KC, I got too involved. I was playing cricket, I was playing football, I was playing table tennis, I was playing basketball. The only thing I didn't play was play hockey and swim. Yeah. <laughs> so I was getting involved in everything. So I really enjoyed that aspect of, of the school. 
I almost got myself into a bit of trouble at one stage as well, Danny, because my mother, who was a teacher, when I was about 14, 15 years old, she started teaching at Casey. Terrible, terrible news. Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, but she wasn't on the same campus I was on. So no, I left school one day to walk over to the campus where she was, and you weren't supposed to be doing that. And the headmaster caught me, but because he was, he knew that I was Mrs. Holding's son. You know, I got away a, a little bit lightly, but I had a good time there. I mean, looking at you now, you're still the uh, the tall, lean, muscular figure you were when you were playing professional cricket. And we now know, of course, Jamaica dominates running in in, in the world of athletics, doesn't it? Yes, yes. Um, Sprints. You, you'd have been well. You, uh, put a course, and you'd have been around to, to watch Don Quarry being uh, the, oh, yes, the, the, the great and wonderful sure. sprinter he was. I mean, were you, were you good at athletics in general? Not really. You like I, games. I, yeah? I, I did athletics, yes, but and I represented my house in the school because you know, in within the school, you have your this championships and the house things, and you represent your house. I wasn't good enough to represent my school on the track. Oh, I really? represented the school at high jump. Okay. But I wasn't good enough to represent the school on track because we had some fantastic athletes at KC. KC won schoolboy championships for 13 years in a row. So all the time I was at KC, we won the schoolboy championships every year, and we produced some really top athletes. When I went there first, we had Lennox Miller, right. who was at the same time as Donald Quarry. And then we had a lot of great athletes through the years after that. Okay, and so um, how quickly were you? Did people identify you were going to be good at cricket, particularly? Well, I think my schoolmaster had a pretty early age. Trevor Parchment decided that he thought I would be better at cricket because, as I said, I played everything, and I was actually playing football and keeping goal at one point, playing outside right at another point. Were you any good? Not really, but I represented the school at under sixteen level, playing outside right. But Mr. Trevor Partment, who was the sports master at KC, said to me once, Mikey, I think you better forget this football thing. <laughs> I think you're, you, you should be okay at cricket. And he saw that I was bowling okay, and he, he push, pushed me in that direction. But away from school, I still played all the sports. I mean, I was on holidays with my friends. used to have a park behind where I lived, I say park, but it was a gully course, actually. <laughs> and when it rained heavily, we couldn't go down there to do anything. But when it was dry, we went down there, we played football, we played cricket, we played marbles. We used to ride the skate on the on the section that was eventually concrete so that the water could flow freely. No, we had a ball of a time. Well, listen, um, we'll hear more about that in just a second. I must say, um, given your running, and for the people who are too young to remember Michael, go on YouTube and watch him running in from the boundary. <laughs> he may not have had the longest run-up in world cricket. I guess I guess Bob Willis would contest that yes. with him. Um, but uh, when I asked you the question about athleticism, I thought, because as a cricketer, you became a middle-distance runner anyway, didn't you? In yeah, course, run a long way. In the, <laughs> in the course of a game, you must have run 15 miles. <laughs> listen, in the next part here of My Sporting Life, we'll look at your continued progression in cricket as you make your impact on a national level with the island of Jamaica before going on to make your test debut for the West Indies. You're listening to My Sporting Life here on TalkSport. My guest this evening is the West Indies great, Michael Holden. Michael 
Yeah, if you ever want to know the esteem with which Michael Holding is held, even in that endless battery and production line of great West Indian fast bowlers, that, my friends, is the late, great Jamaican MC Prince Farai and his song Tribute to Michael Holding. He didn't choose Andy Roberts. He didn't choose Malcolm Marshall. He didn't choose Ian Bishop. He chose Michael Holding. He's my guest here today on My Sporting Life. Um, Might have been a bit of parochialism there. It also, He's also, from Jamaica. Yeah, of course he is. He worked with great Michael Williams. He's from Jamaica. And, of course, holding happens to rhyme with bowling, so that you, there's a little bit of that. Don't do yourself down. Don't do yourself Oh, you think that if he'd been a Calypso artist, he'd have chosen a Trinidadian, yeah? More than likely. Yeah, definitely. more than likely. Um, you played club cricket for a club called Melbourne, who your father was associated with. Yeah. And in the early 70s, you must have developed pretty quickly because you were playing for Jamaica, and I presume they had a pretty good cricket team by the time you were a late teenager, 18. How did this all come about? Yeah, well, I played for Melbourne before I actually played for my school team because, you know, Melbourne Cricket Club, as you said, my father was associated with the club. He later became president for, for a few years. But when I was born, when my father, because I was born at home, 29 on Robin Avenue, in the, the master bedroom, not no hospital and all that sort of thing, daddy. and the midwife came in, my father wasn't allowed to be in the bedroom. No, and the midwife and everything's my changed mother, now. Yeah, everything's changed now. You, so you're expected to be in there holding hands. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> well, anyway, he was standing by the door and perhaps this is a story I'm getting. He heard uh, the crying or whatever and he pushed his head in and the midwife said, it's a boy. And he left immediately and registered me at Melbourne Cricket Club. <laughs> <laughs> a man of great vision. <laughs> yeah, so, I, you know, I've been a, oh, member very of, hopeful. <laughs> a member of Melbourne for 60 years now. And, you know, as soon as I was able to start playing sport and playing games, I started going down to Melbourne and and playing cricket. And Melbourne used to have a team that went out into the rural areas on a Sunday to play against the bauxite companies and to play against teams out in the, what we call the country areas mm. in Jamaica. And so I would play in these teams from a pretty tender age, from I was 10, 11, 12 year, years old. And as a matter of fact, sometimes they would allow me for, to bowl from the batting crease instead of the actual stumps because it was... I was struggling That's yeah. because I didn't grow, I didn't start growing until I was about 16, 17 years old. I was struggling to get the ball up to the batsman from the, the stumps. So they would allow me to bowl from the batting crease. So that's where my grounding started. Was playing at Melbourne and started playing minor cup at Melbourne, doing well in the minor cup teams at Melbourne. And then the sports master, see Mr. Trevor Parchment, heard that I was playing cricket at Melbourne and I was not playing cricket at KC. And he sent for me one day at KC and said, I, I hear you're playing for Melbourne. Why aren't you playing KC? Just something that I just didn't bother to think about or didn't bother to try. And he made me go to practice and then I started playing junior calls at KC. And a matter of fact, my first captain at KC is the great George Headley's one of the great George Headley's sons, because he had quite a few mm -hmm. sons, and he was a fantastic cricketer called Sidney Headley. And if you ever speak to Ron Headley, who lives here now, he'll tell you how good a cricketer mm -hmm. Sidney Headley was. Because Sidney Headley was playing junior coach, which, is, which was under 14s or something like that, and he was still playing Sunlight Cup, which is a senior team at KC. Right. So he was about 14, 15 years old, playing captain in the junior coach team, and still being able to, cap to play for the senior team, which was 19 and under. And that's where I started at Casey and just went through the ranks. Junior Coles, Coles, Sunlight Cup. Were you also a fast bowler, Michael, always? Not really. When I was playing in the backyard and playing in the gully course that I referred to, I was bowling off breaks. Okay. Trying to bowl off breaks, trying to bat. What developed me or 
made me choose to be a fast bowler and helped me along the way was the fact that when you were playing that informal cricket that we call catchy shubi, there's a gentleman now here in England who is trying to do a more formalized form of catchy shubi, Tony Moody, here, here, here in London, in Lambeth, as a matter of fact. But the informal catchy shubi that we played was a matter of whoever had the ball would bowl. The first person to get there with a bat would bat. And if you hit the ball in the air and somebody caught that ball, that person would then bat. It wasn't the bowler who batted. So the only way a bowler could get to bat was either forming partnerships, as they call, they call it, those, those days that you'd have your friends that would feel for you and they'd feed you the ball because they thought you were the better bowler. And if you got somebody out by one of them catching the catch or you hitting the stumps, and the stumps were not sticks. The stumps were corrugated iron, so that when you hit them, it made a noise. <laughs> and no one could ever argue that they weren't out. And that is where you got to bat. Nowhere there were no umpires. So if you weren't somebody that bowled fast, the guys would just keep their legs in the way. Yeah. And you couldn't hit those, that, those stumps. So I decided if I hit them on the leg on a couple of occasions... Hard enough. Hard enough. The next time they saw me coming with the ball, they might not want to put their legs in the way. So that, that is why I started to bowl fast. Well, you must have been good at it because, uh, as I say, you make your your uh, your debut, you, you play for Jamaica as an 18-year-old. You play, I think, your first full game against Barbados in January of 73. What are your re- re- recollections of getting into the Jamaican team? I mean, this must be a huge thing to get into the Jamaican team. Never mind about yeah, this team. Definitely. I was still at school when I got into the Jamaica team. And, you know, playing Sunlight Cup, which was the, se- the senior level at school, you didn't have to be a- as fit as you needed to be to play first-class cricket. And I had no clue. <laughs> and when I went into the Jamaica team, still at school, and they're talking about this young fast bowler, you know, you hear people start to talk. And I then think to myself, I'm in the big man league. If they're talking about me being a young fast bowler, I've got to run in and bowl fast, which is not something I was accustomed to doing at schoolboy level. I would run in, yes, bowl as fast as I possibly could, but not sprinting in. And I got carried away, Daddy. I got carried away in my first game. And after five overs, I was pooped. I was <laughs> flat out. When I walked down the fine leg, Maurice Foster was the captain of the Jamaica team then. When I walked down the fine leg, I was leaning on the fence and hoping that he wouldn't ask me to bowl another over. I don't even remember what happened in the next over that I bowled because he did call me to bowl that sixth over. And I just floated through that over. I, I was in oblivion. I had no idea. I was so tired. And But you learn. You know, that was just a youngster trying to get into the Jamaica team. I had, I had no idea what it, what it took. What was the standard of West Indian cricket like? I mean, inter-island cricket at that time. It was pretty high. We had some outstanding West Indies cricketers who all played in our regional tournament. Those days, not many people played county cricket from Jamaica, that is. So everybody was available for for the regional tournament. And, of course... You had people like Lawrence Rowe, who became a great West Indian batsman. Maurice Foster, who played for the West Indies. Yutan Dow, who also played for the West Indies. We had a lot of cricketers from Jamaica who were very good cricketers. And, of course, the other islands had their big cricketers as well. Viv Richards had, was just about coming on the scene. And the Roberts, matter of fact, the first time I got selected into the Jamaica squad, I wasn't in the final 11. Andy Roberts was in the Combined Island squad as well and not in the final 11. That is how we met. We sat on the benches at Spina Park being 12 men for our respective teams and we just bonded there. We had great friendship. And the very next year, we both were in our our senior teams. 
and meeting at that age and just going right through our careers as friends. I mean, it wasn't a full-time job, cricket, in, in the West Indies in those days. No sort of job at all. Well, we'll talk about money <laughs> later on because, of course, you're involved with Kerry Packer. We'll come yes, on to that. for sure. Um, you, you, became, you got a job in a bank. Yes. Actually, my first job was at Barclays Bank, as it was then. It's no longer Barclays in Jamaica. It's now called National Commercial Bank because it was nationalised and, and, and whatever. But my first job in Jamaica was at the Barclays Bank in their computer department. As a matter of fact, I started working about three, four months before the computer department was actually up. They were putting the computer The very first together. computers, I presume. Yes, yes, the very first time banking was being computerized in Jamaica. And I think this was now 74, sem- yeah, about 1974. And they started taking on staff because they wanted to procure the staff and then they would put everything together. So for the first three, four months I was going to work, I was doing absolutely nothing, sitting down, having a chat, being paid. Not a lot of money, but in those days I felt it was a lot of money. I felt rich. I was getting 120 Jamaica dollars a month, and I felt that I was a rich man. (laughs) You 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 must develop because your your first... Call up for for the to play for the the, the West Indies is in um, the tour of 1975-6 of Australia. Now, yes. what I got to say here is that within two or three years, we're going to be hearing about the start of the greatest cricket team possibly that I can ever remember. I will talk about the Australian team that followed you and the, and the comparisons later on. But this first tour you went on, I'm going to I'm going to have to be careful what I say here. <laughs> I've written down the word disastrous. I've written down the word shambles here in front of me. It was disastrous. You lost 5-1, and you yourself didn't get on very well. Tell us about that tour of Australia. No, well, I... It was a six-test match tour. I missed one test match. I played in five test matches. Danny, I got ten wickets in five test matches. So it was a complete disaster for me. As a matter of fact, I think my figures for the test matches were... Ten wickets for six hundred and forty-two runs, or six hundred and twenty-four runs. So you're talking about an average of sixty odd runs per wicket. Yeah, but you are you are the new kid on the block. To be fair to you. Yeah, but I played in the very first Test match. I went to Australia not expecting to really play, to be honest. And then I did well in this game, state games leading up to the first Test match in Brisbane. And Derek Murray came to me before the we played keeper, against. Yeah. Yes, he was the wicketkeeper. Then came to me, and I think he was vice captain as well at the same time. He came to me before. West, the West Indies team played against Queensland, which is a lead-up game to the test match, and said to me, Mikey, you won't be playing against Queensland. So I was a little bit worried. I thought I'd done something. Why, you know, why, why am I being dropped? And he said to me, you're not playing because you're playing in the test match. <laughs> I was shocked out of my wits. I never ever believed I would, I would be playing in, in the test series at all, much less the first test match. First innings I bowled in in that first test match, zero, Danny, zero wickets. I do, I think I perhaps, perhaps went up for about 100 runs as well. <laughs> zero wickets, but I did one good thing. I ran out Ian Redpath from fine leg. Yeah. <laughs> and they got to realise that I had a fairly strong arm. Well, they won't, they won't run on your arm again, will they? That's for sure. I mean, there's another issue. I mean, you're an emotional guy, Mikey, Michael. It's, Still it's clear, Still absolutely. Um, we'll talk later on about kicking over the stumps in a Test match, an image that you know it's, it's indelibly yeah. seared into the mind of anybody who in watched New Test Zealand. cricket over the last forty years. But there's a, there's an incident with the umpires in this series where you cry on the pitch. Sydney, Sydney Test match. We went to Sydney. I think the Sydney Test was the fourth Test of the series. We lost in Brisbane. 
We won in Perth, we lost in Melbourne, and Sydney was the fourth test match, and we were desperate to try and win that test match to get back on, on even terms. And I came up with, after tea, I think it was, I think the first ball after tea, I got a wicket. I think it might have been Red Path. And the very next ball, in my opinion, and in most people's opinion, I got another wicket, which was Ian, Ian Chappell. Which is an important wicket to be very, guessing. Very, very important wicket. Ian Chappell is a world-class batsman, yeah. and he was you know, scoring lots of runs in that series. He and his brother, Greg. And the umpire said, not out. And I just could not believe it. I had seen instances in the test matches before where, you know, umpires made bad decisions or gave out when they weren't or we not. should make the point, this is at a, t- at a time when, of course, both the standing umpires were home umpires yes, as well. Yes, that's long before the yeah, international yeah. panel. Absolutely. <laughs> a long, long time before the international panel. And to be honest, I broke down. I, I couldn't believe it. I could not believe that something that was as obvious as that, that the umpire could have said not out. Because as a young man growing up, as you made the point earlier on, Danny, I went to Australia very inexperienced. I think I'd played five games for Jamaica before I, I went to Australia. That's why I didn't expect to play. And as a young man growing up and you hear your parents talking about cricket and hearing about the gentleman's game, you just assume that when somebody was out, he was out. And because of the emotion of the moment and the fact that we were behind in the series and desperate to win this test match, and this was now going to be our breakthrough to get back on even terms, I just lost it. I went out to a perhaps extra cover somewhere around there, and I knelt down, and the tears came to my eyes. I think it was Lance Gibbs who ran over to me from God. Bless him. (laughs) And said, Mikey, you have to continue. And... (laughs) I'm I'm laughing about it now, but it's obviously not funny for you at the time. Not at the time. Definitely not at the time. So in the middle of the over, you stopped and and you're crying. And Lance Gibbs, the great great spin bowler, has to come and say, come on, guy, you've got got to go again. Yeah, I I think that over took about nine minutes to be completed because those days it was eight ball overs. And it took me a long time to really compose myself and get back to my to my crease, to my marker rather. After that a disastrous uh, start for you and a disastrous tour for the West Indies, that you then play India back in the islands. Yeah. Um, uh, I should say in South America as well, because the Guyanese people have <laughs> got to get this right, haven't I? Still just call it West yeah, Indies. Yeah, the West Indies, yeah. yeah. And um, Clive Lloyd, the captain, it's a, it's a quite close series, but it, something happens there that is the start of the change of the history of world cricket. Tell us about that. Well, what really made spur the change was a test match before we actually won the series in Jamaica. It was the test match in Trinidad. The theory... Everyone said when you go to Trinidad, you play at spinners because Trinidad produced a lot of spinners, Inshan Ali and Rafik Jumadin and lots of spinners, Imtiaz Ali. And when the test match against India was being played in Trinidad, they selected three spinners. And Clive Lloyd, obviously being part of the selection panel, was a part of the selection of the three spinners. We lost that test match. Did you play, yeah? Yeah, I you played. You and three spinners, yeah. He, he, myself, um, I'm, one, I'm not too sure if Andy played because Andy... Perhaps I think Andy missed out. I think mm. Bernard, Julian and myself were the yeah. two new ball bowlers. Yeah. And then we had three spinners. And we declared the second innings and set India 400 and something, 14 or something like that. A huge amount to make. A yeah. huge amount of money. <laughs> Not money, <laughs> amount of runs. <laughs> to make, yeah. <laughs> and they knocked them off four wickets down, I think. And one of the four wickets went by the run-out route. And Lloyd decided there and then... No more talk about this pitch suits, this and that pitch suits, whatever. We'll play our best bowlers. We'll pick four fast bowlers if they are the four best bowlers, which 
it was because we had Andy Roberts, we had myself, we had Van Bernhola, we had Bernard Julian, we had Keith Boyce, we had Wayne Daniel. All those guys were fast bowlers available around around that time. And Lloyd just decided we would pick the four best bowlers. We went to Jamaica. Four fast bowlers played in Jamaica and we won the, the test match there in Jamaica. I don't think India really appreciated some of the tactics that we used and I'll openly say that yes, it, it was a little bit harsh sometimes we went round the wicket and bowled quite a few bounces and, and that sort of a thing. But it proved successful in that series, in that particular test match and Lloydie just carried that forward, decided that the best bowlers would play and they happened to be fast bowlers. And this this idea... Um, gets it that 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 was a, a close series. This idea gets its first chance to be tried out properly in the follow in the summer of 1976 for people like myself who saw two of the bits and pieces of two of the tests. Unforgettable. <laughs> the West Indies team comes comes here after Tony Gregg, the England captain, had had used an unfortunate word and said yes. he was going to make these people grovel. Yeah. And I think given the the, the, the historic links and the story, but of well, the of what happened in the Caribbean, it was a poor word to choose. Um, it was also, I should tell people, the summer of 1976 was the hottest summer of the 20th century. Um, the, the, <laughs> the, the, uh, the, the reservoirs dried up. Uh, yep. the, cracks, the, water, the motorways were melting. The, the, the parks were, were bright white. The grass died and all the rest of it. Um, it suited the West Indies team. And you came here and with this battery of fast bowlers, not yet by any means the fastest battery you were to no, produce. not yet. But still with yourself at the spearhead and Andy Roberts, of course, the great Andy Roberts. You made an absolute mess of English cricket and won five nil, and it's, it's stuck in no, my that, memory. No, that series was three nil. Oh, sorry, three nil. Yeah, three nil. That yeah. series. Yeah, we'll come on to the five nils a bit later <laughs> on. Uh, but that was one. It was the one in seventy six when people said, "Oh my God, something's happening here." Yeah, well, I just said it was a fantastic summer as far as weather is concerned, and we, the West Indians, of course, we relished the, the warmth and. That series, we got a little bit, as you said, a little bit of a pe- of a pep in our step because of what Tony Gregg said. And some of us did didn't actually... Did it affect you, yeah? Definitely, definitely. Yeah. Some of us didn't see it live, but heard about it afterwards. Because those days when a touring team came to England, they never played on a Sunday. Even test matches, didn't, Sunday was the rest day. Right. And so we were resting on that Sunday, but they had the John Player League, I think it was. Yeah, the, the old 40, 50 overs four, thing. Yeah. Yes. And the Sussex were playing down at Hove. And the BBC cameras turned up at Hove to interview the England captain, Tony Gregg. And I remember him speaking. I don't remember who was interviewing him, but I remember him speaking, I suppose, in someone's office at the ground and saying that, you know, when the Westerners are on top, they are brilliant, but when they are down, they grovel, and I, with the help of Closey and a few others, intend to make them grovel. And as you said, it was an unfortunate word because with his background... Being South African, of course, he still had apartheid in that country. Apartheid was still going on at the time. And we had our backs up. And every time he came to the crease, I think the fast bowlers found an extra yard or two of pace. And the other batsmen who batted with him were upset every, whenever they had to bat with him because, of course, they would feel the heat as well. One of those batsmen um, was a gentleman um, brought in to try and combat this, uh, what described in the film, of course, as fire over Babylon. Fire in uh, Babylon. Fire, yeah, absolutely. Fire in Babylon when it arrived in England. And um, was the great uh, uh, batsman... Uh, uh, Brian Close, and I'm delighted to say he joins us now. Hello, Brian. 
Hello there. How are you? Very, very good indeed. And uh, say hello to Michael. He's a safe distance away now. <laughs> How are you, Closey? <laughs> I'm very well. And you? I am very good, thanks. Are you still turning your arm over? <laughs> no, Closey. No, I stopped that quite a few years ago. Ten years ago, I played my last right. game. Uh, it's, 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 there's still some fine muscles. I think he might be lifting an occasional glass of red wine towards <laughs> it. With, with it. <laughs> Brian, that would be nice, wouldn't it? <laughs> Brian, I had the, the privilege of watching Michael Holding running in from 45 yards, but I was on the safe side of the rope. Describe Michael Holding as a bowler and your experience against him in the, the summer of 1976 here in England. Well, he was a bit sharp. <laughs> him, there were two of the... Well, in fact, him and Wes Hall were the two fastest I've ever run across. In, a generation in apart, but very quick, yeah. And uh, they, were, uh, they were a great side in 76. And uh, as Michael's just been saying... Uh, Greggy was stupid opening his bloody mouth. <laughs> <laughs> Brian, let me ask you a question. I mean, famously, I mean, often it was said of you that if you're up against bowlers who were particularly quick or trying to hurt yourself, you just you just stand there and wear them, as they say. Uh, but really, could, could you really do that against somebody as fast as Michael Holding? Surely you just end up in bits and pieces. Well, the, uh, the one thing about it is that you've got to protect your wickets. So, of course, uh, you play back so that you know the wickets are behind you. They can't... They the damn things without the you <laughs> <laughs> and uh, um, you know it was a bit uh, I enjoyed it actually it was a great battle and not and, a lot of uh, protection those days either closely oh we didn't have any then exactly the only thing you had was a thigh pad <laughs> <laughs> and a little pink box <laughs> oh I remember those <laughs> Yeah, I do. But nowadays, they have all kinds of blooming things. Oh, they look like, Amer- look like American footballers now, don't yeah. they? Let's be truthful. Uh, Brian, um, when, you, when, when the dust settled on that series and you counted your bruises, um, did you think we were going to see a generation of dominance by the West Indian fast bowlers? Well, uh, ever since the early 60s, the late 50s, the West Indies have always had uh, two or three really great fast bowlers, you know. And uh, I suppose, in some respects, they're going to keep on producing them. But uh, it'll take them some doing, though, won't it? It will, Brian. Thanks. And it's been a joy just to hear your voice and some recollections of that amazing summer of 1976. Thank you very it much was, indeed. It was good fun afterwards. <laughs> yeah, afterwards, yeah. <laughs> Looking back. Yeah. <laughs> in retrospect. Thank you, Brian. Uh, take- Take care, Michael. You too, Closey. Good to speak to you again. Michael, um, I'm going to explain what World Series cricket was. It'll save us a lot of time in the long sure. run. Sure. In 1977, 78, 79, an Australian entrepreneur called Kerry Prackett decided that uh, cricket was living in the 19th century, the players were getting paid nothing, and he wants to own all the television rights. As a result, he started to put on alternate test matches and one-day internationals and gathered up all the great players of the world. Indeed, Tony Gregg, of whom we spoke a minute ago, was absolutely central to getting the England players to do it. It was an absolute schism in world cricket. It tore the game apart for two or three years. Cricket councils wouldn't pick players who played for Packer. Packer said, I'll destroy the game. Everything went up in flames, and you were right in the middle of that as a very young man. Tell us about World Series cricket. Yes, I was only 23 years old at the time. 1976, we spoke about that earlier on the tour, my first tour here in England, did very well. And when I went back to Jamaica, the Prime Minister at the time, Michael Manley, gave me a scholarship to go to the University of the West Indies. And in fact, I was not playing with the West Indies when World Series Cricket started, Danny. I had gone to the University of the West Indies in September 1976 what you to pursue a four-year course in computer science. Right. And 
Pakistan were touring, <clears throat> beg your pardon, Pakistan were touring the Caribbean in 1977, early. I don't remember, February, March, somewhere around that, mm-hmm. that, that time of the year. And they are in Trinidad, and I get a call from Clive Lloyd while I'm in Jamaica, living at my parents' home, because Lloyd, I'm say, were very, very close. He had my number, my parents' have number, of course. Those days, no mobile phones, that sort of thing. Phone rang at my home. Father said, your skipper is on the phone, although I wasn't playing. Still referred to him as my skipper. And when I got the call from Lloyd, he started to tell me about World Series cricket. I should make the point, this, all this was happening in great secrecy. Cloak yeah, no and dagger. Because no if we'd been knew. got out, the cricket authorities would have stopped it. Oh, they would have found some way of trying to stop it, or, yeah. or definitely stopping it. He told me about World Series cricket and this man from Australia was trying to do private enterprise cricket, as it was called. And he said two people would come and, and see me in Jamaica to discuss it with me. And I said to him, who are these people? And he said, Tony Gregg and Austin Robertson. And when he said Tony Gregg, because I remember this is just after 76 yeah, and yeah. 76 too. When he said Tony Gregg, I said to him, Tony Gregg, I don't want to talk to Tony Gregg. And he said, no, 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 no. He, he just listen to what they have to say. So eventually Tony Gregg and Austin Robertson arrive in Jamaica and we go to the Sheraton Hotel and I meet them in this room. They start telling me about this Kerry Packer and showing me pamphlets and thing about his woman's weekly magazine and his television station, Channel 9, and what he owns and what he doesn't own. And I simply said to them, listen, Skipper Lloyd says that he has signed, just show me where to sign. I didn't want to hear anything else. You trusted Clive enough. Yeah, yeah, once Clive said he had signed and he saw no problem with it, I was happy to sign. Plus, what they also guaranteed us, what a lot of people are not aware of, Danny, is Kerry Packer guaranteed that the West Indians would always be available to play for the West Indies. Now, that is being selfish. I only looked at that. I only looked at the fact that West Indies cricket was not being disrupted. And to be even more selfish... I was not playing for the West Indies. I had gone to university. I had mm. pretty much put cricket on the back burner. I was now thinking of a career after cricket because cricket wasn't paying any money. No. The series that I played, my first ever series in Australia, 75, 76, I earned 1,500 Eastern Caribbean dollars, which converted to about 600 US dollars. Coming back to play India in the Caribbean, we got 200 US dollars per test. We went to Ghana. The test match was washed out. We got nothing. So I wasn't earning money from cricket, and my mother kept on telling me from years ago when I was at school farming the ass and trying and playing on sport, Mikey, you have got to have a piece of paper behind your name because later on you need to get a job, you need to be qualified. So I had moved on. So when this man came and offered 25000 Australian dollars per year, three years guaranteed, there's no way I could turn my back on that. I'm mean, interested to note when reading about this that the the, other, the only other thing that was an issue for you, and I don't know if it was an issue for other West Indians, uh, we shouldn't forget we still had the apartheid regime yes. in South Africa, and you didn't play against uh, the South Africans, and I think you were very strong on this, but there were several, there were going to be lots of uh, South Africans in the World Series of Cricket, and this was an issue for you. Yes, well, because of Michael Manley again, who was big against apartheid, he led the Glen Eagles Agreement up in Scotland to... This is the Jamaican Prime Minister. Jamaican yeah. Prime Minister, yes. And he had given me the scholarship to go to university. Yes. So I had a great respect for him and I also knew what he stood for. And when Tony Gregg and Austin Robertson showed me the list of names that I had already signed, I said to them, listen, I cannot play against these South Africans. Mr. My, my Prime Minister will not allow me to play against these South Africans. So he, Mr. Packer or whoever has to clear this with Mr. Michael Manley before I can even come... To, 
come to Australia? And I said, yes, yes, we'll make sure that when we get back to Australia that it is sorted. I said, unless it is sorted, you do not have me, I'll sign. But unless that is sorted, I'm not coming. And eventually, Kerry Parker paid off all the South Africans who had not played in county cricket because that's the agreement that Kerry Parker and Michael Mandy had. Michael Mandy said, okay, I'll allow my boys to play against the South Africans who are playing county cricket because they play against them in county cricket now. But the South Africans who are not playing county cricket, I think there were about three or four of them, I'm not going to allow my boys to come to, bar to Australia to play against them. It worked. Um, I mean, World Series cricket was an amazing thing. Dennis Lilly, Rod Marsh, Tony Gregg, Alan Knott, Derek Underwood, Zahir Abbas, Eddie Barlow, Imran Khan. I could go on and on. A lot, all, of, big a lot of fantastic big names played, often in empty stadiums and often to the great. The first year, yes. Great host- yes, that's right, the first year. Great hostility in the press, people calling you um, mercenaries, mercenaries yes. rebels. What yes. did it, how did that feel to you? Well, we were dumbfounded, first of all. We didn't appreciate what was actually taking place and what it meant to the, the rest of world cricket. As I said, especially me, I am 23 years old. I am naive to exactly how, what, an, what impact it's going to have on world cricket. At the same time, selfish. I'm just thinking about myself. I'm going to be blunt. The money was just too big to refuse. Sure. But when all this started to take place... You know, we sit down, Viv Richards, Clive Lloyd, myself, Andy Roberts, we sit down and we think to ourselves, you know, have we done the right thing here? Because, you know, all the backlash. But then people in the Caribbean were supporting us. And we were still able to play for the West Indies. We yeah. still went back after the first year of World Series cricket and played for the West Indies. So although the rest of the world was getting all hot and heated about this thing, we were feeling the heat, yes, but not as much as, say, the guys here in England or some of the other guys from around the rest of the world. Yeah. It, it lasted two years. Um, there was supposed to be a three years, but yes. they eventually, of course, an agreement was reached. Peace broke out in world cricket. Yep. Um, uh, you say you, you made some decent money for the first time, and you got a new car out of this, Michael. <laughs> well, it was new in a sense, new to me. It wasn't a brand new car. It was a second-hand car. It was actually a rental. A what rental. car was it? It was a Galant. I don't remember them. What, who made those? I can't Mitsubishi. Oh, so Jap- Mitsubishi yeah. Galant, yes. Well, that, that, and that was the, the embodiment of the progress you'd made. Yes, for sure, because yeah. I couldn't ever think of buying a car in those days. Incredible. That's World Series cricket, and uh, thank you for that. Next up here on My Sporting Life, it's time for Michael Holding to endure your sporting inquisition. Your Sporting Inquisition on Talk Sport. Michael Holden. Yeah, that music's very foreboding, isn't it? But it's not quite as bad as that. Uh, you know the format. About 20 questions of the sort that might have been asked in a 1970s football magazine. And we'll get Michael Holding's answers to them. Some of them will be more, more interesting than others, I imagine. Here we go. Your favourite sporting venue? Sabina Park. That's home. That's, uh, yeah, that's very parochial of you. Uh, yes, definitely. Uh, uh, who's, your tough, who's your toughest opponent? Ian Chappell. As a youngster bowling against Ian Chapel, it wasn't easy. Hence the crying at uh, yes. leg or wherever it when was. When I got him out, I felt I had achieved something, turned to be nothing. What's your favourite city? Sydney, Australia. I love Sydney. It's a beautiful place, isn't it? It is, yeah. with the harbour and all that. We heard about your Galant, but what's the best car you've ever driven? <laughs> I bought a Mercedes-Benz here in England in 1980, and then I, I've been driving one here in England again for the last four or five years. You like that? Yes, I What's like your favourite driving song? Um, 
There's a lot of songs that I like to listen to. One of them that I listened to a lot when I was at Derby was Dancing on the Ceiling, Lionel Richie, because ah. it had an upbeat tempo. And I hope the police officers aren't listening, but I used to drive fast those days. So, you know, the tempo and the, the driving went together. Can't do it now, the cameras and no, all that. No, exactly. Um, what's your... What's your uh, here we go. Viv Richards... I'm going to sit back in case I swing at me. Viv Richards <laughs> or Brian, Brian Lara? Viv Richards, by a distance. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'll talk about that maybe later on. What's your favourite drink? Lemonade. Simple water, lime and... It's not even lemon. Limes in Jamaica. Limes, water and sugar. I still enjoy it. OK. If you could uh, be a star in another sport other than cricket, which one would you choose? Athletics. I wish I could have been a 400 metres hurdler. Okay. I yeah. did hurdles at school and I loved it. Um, who would you pick to play you in a film? Oh, Denzel Washington. Yeah, he's the man, isn't he? <laughs> he Absolutely. is the man, yeah. definitely. Which historical figure do you most admire? Mandela. Did I you... never met him ah. and that is one of the saddest things in my life. I never uh, got to, to meet a great man. That's a shame because uh, several people who have uh, done this program have met him. Yeah. And of course, they all talk about it in this kind of Greatest man tone. ever. Who's your favourite cartoon character? Mickey Mouse. Okay. I, I use that term regularly. Very old school. Yeah, it is, yeah. Mostly, mostly to describe West Indian pace bowling. And what was your best moment in cricket? My best moment in cricket was being a member of the West Indies team in 1979-80 that beat Australia in Australia for the very first time. The first ever West Indies team to beat Australia in Australia. I will, I'll live with that forever. And you know what? We're going to hear a lot about that in the second half of my sporting life. As I say, because still to come, I'll be discussing the remainder of your test career. We'll be talking about winning the World Cup. We'll be including your perfect over against uh, Jeff Boycott, your controversial stump-kicking incident at Dunedin against New Zealand. Uh, the World Cup final defeat in India in 1983, plus your time playing county cricket here for Lancashire and Derbyshire and much else besides, because you're listening to My Sporting Life with me, Danny Kelly, here on TalkSport. But much more importantly, my guest tonight, who is the mighty Michael Holding. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The following on podcast is proudly sponsored by Barbados Tourism. If your passion for travel is on par with your passion for cricket, then I have some excellent news. The ICC Men's Cricket T20 World Cup Final is being hosted in Barbados this June, which makes it the perfect destination for your summer holidays this year. To make the most of your trip, you can also experience eight matches from the series in Barbados, including England against Scotland and England against Australia. In under a month's time, you could be spending your days exploring the vibrant streets of Bridgetown, drinking rum in the sunshine 
and experiencing exotic Bayesian delicacies in the culinary capital of the Caribbean, there truly is something for everyone. There's no need to wait a second longer. Head to visitbarbados.org forward slash cricket today to book the trip of a lifetime to Barbados, truly the best place to be a cricket fan. On DAB Digital Radio and 1089 and 1053 AM, my sporting life on Talk Sport. Yeah, I'm Danny Kelly. Welcome to part two of my sporting life with Michael Holding here on Talk Sport. And Michael is one of the greatest and most fearsome fast bowlers in the history of Test cricket, a reputation gained for his performances in the legendary West Indies side, which dominated the sport throughout the 70s and 80s. In 60 test matches for the Windies, he took 249 wickets, including 14 for 149 against England at the Oval in the summer of 1976, the finest match figures still ever produced by a West Indian. He's also remembered for arguably the most ferocious over ever in test cricket against Geoffrey Boycott at the Kensington Oval in 1981 when he smashed the English batsman's wicket with a sixth ball, while in the one-day international arena he took 142 wickets and 102 appearances, and he was a member of the West Indies side which won the 1979 World Cup. He also represented Jamaica, Lancashire, Tasmania, Derbyshire and Canterbury in first-class cricket and after retiring from the playing side of the game in 1989, he's forged a successful media career as a respected cricket commentator as well as spending time as an ICC official. On tonight's My Sporting Life, I'm joined by the West Indies cricket legend that is Michael Holding. Michael, if we, uh, we might stray away from the uh, test arena just for a second or two. Uh, the West Indies, as we heard earlier on, had won the inaugural uh, World Cup and they defended their trophy in 1979 here in England. Yeah. And the, the young holding was in that team as well. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I didn't play in the centre five team, but I played centre nine. No, no, quite. That's what yeah. I'm saying. I mean, we, you, you were here for this. Uh, well, it's a, a big thing, and uh, the, the one day World Cup. It wasn't quite the razzmatazz of now. It Not was establishing itself, wasn't it? Just but, establishing itself. The one, yeah. the one day games, as a matter of fact. I don't think I played a one day international until about 1976 because I wasn't a part of the Western team in centre five. And I think th- when we came to England in 76, we played like three one-day games for, for for the summer. So it wasn't something that was well-established at international level. Uh, but the 79 World Cup was a big thing. We had one in 75. We wanted to defend our, our throne. We came close to losing a semi-final. I think it was against Pakistan at the Oval. But I think we we did pretty pretty well in the rest of the games. Well, I mean, I'm just looking at the squad that you brought and... With all due respect to one or two of the Van Ben holders and one or two of the fast medium bowlers that you mentioned to me <laughs> earlier on, and when you talk about the fast bowling attack, let me just remind people that for the 19th, this is a one day match, don't forget. The West Indies brought Michael Holding, Colin Croft, Joel Garner, Andy Roberts, and Malcolm Marshall. They can't all play, <laughs> but that's plenty for most people, isn't it? You're absolutely right here. You beat in the group stages, uh, India, uh, there was a no result against Sri Lanka, um, beat New Zealand. Um, that semi-final against Pakistan and then the final against England what do you remember about that I know what I remember <laughs> but, uh, but uh, I don't want to talk about the slow pace of England's batting what do you remember about that Sarah? no well what I remember first of all the slow pace of England's batting came later yeah, on was Bib Richards' innings and of course with the help of, of Collis King we were struggling a little bit we lost some early wickets and Viv and Collis King put a partnership, partnership together that pretty much won the game for us I remember Bib hitting the last ball of the innings of Mike Hendrick for six in the tavern stand, yeah, I think it's tavern called. Stand, yeah, yeah he, last ball of the innings for six, and when he and Collis walked off the field, I think we all pretty much thought to ourselves, "This is too much." You know, England are not going to get these runs, although it was sixty overs at the time, Danny. Yeah, but 
although it was 60 overs, we didn't have field restrictions. So you could you set could your fielders them, yeah. anywhere. So getting that number of runs in 60 overs was going to be a difficult task. Plus, with all due respect, England hadn't really worked out how to play one-day cricket. And <laughs> Jeff Boycott and Mike Brearley were happy to go along at one and a half and over for half the game. Yeah, the opening partnership <laughs> put a good they put a good number of runs together, but, but it not, took a lot of time. It took a very very long time. I just just I mean, obviously, fantastic thing for to to win that trophy and be world champion. Um, but your own bowling figures and your eight overs, two for sixteen. That's not bad in any one day cricket. I wasn't, is it? Even, I wasn't even aware of that. I didn't know that the figures were you that got, good. You, in fact, you got um, Brearley and Boycott out. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, so that wasn't really helping the West Indies. They needed to stay in. <laughs> I think Clive Lloyd dropped a catch somewhere <laughs> during that partnership, and people said that he dropped it purposely. Yeah, because they were—they're <laughs> never going to win this game. They might stay in for the whole thing, but yeah, never... they, they were scoring. All, too slowly. Ser- all seriousness, to, to win it at the home of cricket, as we call Lords, yeah, that uh, must be a fantastic feeling. It was a great feeling, you know, the World Cup beating the entire world. You know, it was a big event. So just starting off, they were trying to promote this one day World Cup and to win it both times it was played was a great feeling you know the West Indies that is now I, some of the guys who played 79 were around in 75 but just to know that the West Indies had won both occasions that was a great feeling that's not enough time for the World Cup but I've got so much to get through I'm going to leave it behind now because <laughs> immediately after that um the, the West Indian team which is beginning to really start to look like it's going to dominate as it turns out for 20 years um, yeah. goes to Australia then I guess the next most powerful team in the world or then the most powerful team in the world depending on how you look at it um, West Indies had never won in Australia never um, and you and your colleagues uh, again with that uh, Holding, Roberts Garner, Croft etc and some batsmen that we'll talk about <laughs> you go there and you won the series 2-0 what are your recollections of that I mean you, you mentioned to us uh, 10 minutes ago that it's perhaps the highlight of your career it is definitely it, it was a three test series I think that year the, it was shared I think two teams toured Australia that, that Australia in summer and we only played three test matches and we went in the last test match at Adelaide if we had, we had lost that test match the series would have been drawn one all yeah. and we were desperate to win that test match and Clive Lloyd, I think, played a major part because we batted last chasing some runs. Clive Lloyd played a major, major part. He and Larry Gomes, I think, put a very good partnership together and got those runs. And believe me, all the fast bowlers ran out onto the pitch and lifted Lloyd onto our shoulders and uh, to take him that, off the field. That's quite a lot of men to lift up as well. Yeah, but we were big guys, you know, <laughs> Colin Croft, Joel Garner, you know, big guys. <laughs> I, I mean, we, we, we will talk later on about the fast bowling battery and the controversy about the way you, you, you went about your business and all that. But sometimes I think it gets overlooked in all of this that the, the West Indies also had, were developing and had eventually developed the most powerful batting lineup that we'll probably certainly had been ever seen up to then perhaps mm-hmm. the Australians of 20, 15, 20 years later could match them maybe the, maybe the Indian batting of five or six years ago in terms of sheer runs but just remind us of some of the people you, you were playing with at that time well early, early days Roy Fredericks was, was the opening batsman but by the time we really established ourselves and became world dominant it was Greenwich and Haynes opening the batting still uh, the most prolific opening partnership ever for West Indies, I don't think it's the most prolific ever. I think uh, you think hey, Langer and uh, and Hayden overtook. I am them. not I, great on statistics, yeah. Daddy, but I think I, I remember hearing something about them. Well, I did Matthew Hayden for this program about yeah. six weeks ago, and he doesn't think so. He thinks that uh, still I'm, Haynes. Okay, uh, okay. Well, I'm happy. To, I'm happy to take yeah. it. <laughs> 
They were a fantastic opening partnership. Fantastic opening partnership. And then, of course, you had Bib Richards coming in at number three. But I'll take you back to that test match at, at, at Lord's when David Gore declared setting Western is over 300 runs to, to make in less than a day. Bib Richards did not even get a chance to bat. Greenwich made a double century and Larry Gomes came in at number three. So just to show you the strength of the batting lineup. Because Lloyd came in after that. We had Jeffrey Dujon batting at seven as a wicketkeeper batsman. He made centuries. Not many centuries because he didn't get a long time to bat most no. of the times. <laughs> but we had a strong batting lineup. Gordon was limping, was he, when he got that 200? <laughs> More than likely. Yeah, Whenever he, he limped, you were uh, in trouble. Yeah, because he was making out <laughs> something wrong with him. He's, I'll just make the point there that in that Australian series, which did, of course, establish you as the best team in the world, yeah. Viv Richards made 140 at Brisbane, 96 at Melbourne, 76, 74 at Adelaide. But at this stage, they, they were struggling to get him out, even a very good Australian attack. Yeah. Um, we must talk about something else. We, you went on from that brilliant series to New Zealand. And... The umpiring, um, which, which of course has changed now, but the, the umpiring caused a lot of pro- problems. Uh, I don't think you thought you were getting the right end of it. In fact, the West Indies eventually went on strike over the umpiring, and you famously um, kicked the stumps over when you didn't get a decision. We'll talk about why you did it. Here's how you did it. All played at this one. Loud appeal for the court behind. Well, this is... Uh... Appeal for the court behind. We'll watch this one. There is playing at it. Didn't look like he got the edge. Michael Holding has shown rather more frustration than one would anticipate or expect. A very contained commentary there. The actual photograph, of course. I mean, you're you're, you're a pretty fit man in those days. Yeah. You've kicked the stump, and your leg is like a dancing girl. It's way above head height, and you're a tall bloke. I mean, it's incredible. You took, I was an, incre- fit those days, you took an incredible swipe at it. <laughs> yes, it was a frustration. You know, it, that was the first test match in Dunedin, and we had had pretty much enough, or I had had enough, because it continued throughout the rest of the series. But the umpiring was atrocious. I think and biased, it, you, yeah. Yeah. There is no way that it was all mistakes. You can't make mistakes in one direction. <laughs> and I think during that commentary, the first time I'm actually hearing, you heard Desmond Haynes in the background say, shouting, come on, man, because it had been going on. And this is just the first test match. And the the batsman was Parker. I don't remember his, his first name. And he heard the commentator say he can't detect an edge. There was no edge. It didn't hit the bat. It hit his glove. And he was taking his gloves off because the ball had hit his glove th- that hard. And he was looking to head towards the pavilion because the pavilion was side on in front of him. And his bat is under his arm. If you look at the picture, you'll see it. Glo- one glove off, bat under his arm. And he looks at the umpire and the umpire just shakes his head. So he just stood there and put the glove back on. And when I saw that, I just, I just saw red. I, the mist came down, as they said. <laughs> because, you know, those days, well, I'm still a, a little bit emotional, but those days I was fiery and emotional. I mean, nowadays, if it happened, it would have been a global inquiry. I would have been suspended. I would, be, I would have been fined. I would, lots of things would Questions have happened. Questions in, in various parliaments. There was an inquiry, you know, because there was a, an official inquiry. And what the, I, what the New Zealand umpires told the person or the people that were holding the inquiry is that we were bowling too fast for them to see the ball. That's why they made so many mistakes. Give me a break. Um, we could talk about individual test matches and things, and we will come back to some of, the, some of your bowling and stuff, but um, I think we need to talk about what that team 
did and what it meant. You mentioned the film Fire in Babylon, um, and it, I think it's, it's definitely true to say that that West Indian team came to mean in the wider world much more than just a sports team. From my own experience, and I don't want to make too much of this, I knew West Indian kids, I grew up in British West Indian kids, grew up yeah. with in London, who took that team to their hearts as a kind of badge of, okay, uh, we can achieve something beyond yep. what we're being told we can achieve. Yep. Were you aware of that when you were playing? Not initially, to be honest. No. I can't say that with, in the 76 store, for instance, no. that I was aware of exactly th- that no. effect that mm-hmm. we were having. Mm-hmm. Of course, I knew a lot of West Indians who lived in England, and I knew that they felt good when we won. It made them feel very proud, and it made them feel that they could identify with success. So I knew about that effect, but I didn't know about the the wider aspect of it all. And the film Fire in Babylon that you referred to, mm. when that film was being made, yes, I by that time, I got to understand exactly what the West Indies team meant to people here in England. And not just people here in England, any West Indian anywhere in the world. Yeah, the because, whole diaspora, yeah. yeah we, the only thing we do in the Caribbean together, Danny, is play cricket. Every other sport is done by that island's team or that country's team. Um, well, let me ask you about that then. I mean, because the idea, the concept of a West Indies, I know there's a university of the West Indies, yes, but the, it's not a nation. It's a series of small and bigger nations. A lot nations. of little islands. Absolutely. With uh, their own anthems, their own currency, their own flags, their own governments. And now that you mentioned the University of the West Indies, that started off as one campus in Jamaica. Now everybody has their own campus, so we're even splitting yeah. <laughs> up in, in that regard as well. Uh, so if I asked you, are you a West Indian or are you a Jamaican? I'm a West Indian. Yeah? I'm a West so you Indian, are, definitely. There is, a, there is, a, there is something I, there. Because I played cricket, I identify as a West Indian. I'm proud, proud Jamaican, of course. Mm. And I still have my Jamaican passport. I live in the U.S. now, but I still travel on my Jamaican passport, which gives me a lot of hell in a lot of countries that I go to. But I'll never get rid of my Jamaican passport. So I'm a proud Jamaican, but because I played cricket for the West Indies, I refer to myself as a West Indian. A lot of people in the Caribbean like, would like to call themselves West Indians. They're not true West Indians. Like who? Just people in general. They only worry about their own island. Uh-huh. Yeah. And especially when it comes to cricket, they'll tell you everything in the book about the person that comes from their island. <laughs> but talk about other people from other islands, they're not really interested. Let me ask you this. The current West Indian team, uh, there's been a decline in, uh, since, I guess, since um, Lara, Walsh, th- that, that generation yeah. stopped playing. There's been a, not just a slow, but a very quick decline in the West Indian cricket team, right? So where they are now, sometimes they win, sometimes they lose. Often yeah. they lose shambolically. True. If the West Indies cricket team was to fade away to be insignificant, let's say that the famous breakthrough of basketball was to happen in the West <laughs> Indies, which people say, and of course it's nonsense. But, Rubbish. Yeah, it's nonsense. But that's what they used to say. The basketball was replaced it and all the rest of it. Let's say that PlayStation replaces cricket and, as, and the West Indies cricket team becomes a sideshow. Will, the, will, will the, the idea of West Indies disappear then? Not really, because people still try to think West Indian. You know, even when it comes to business, the CARICOM market, for instance, you know, being able to move products around the Caribbean without attracting duty from one island to to, the other. Yeah, like the the EU here. Yeah, that sort of thing. Free trade area. Yeah, so that aspect of it, people are still trying to keep together. But the real identity is with cricket, Danny, because a lot of islands in the Caribbean have never produced a test cricketer, but they still talk about we and us. 
which is what keeps the West Indian region together. Okay, uh, and of course, it, what has been brilliant over the last uh, twenty, thirty years is that the West Indian team used to be Jamaica, Barbados, Trinidad, Guyanese players by and large. You know, uh, well, uh, years uh, gone uh, by before uh, the Combined Islands really got strong. And now we see people Leeward's. coming from little tiny islands yeah. to play. Um, obviously, St. Lucians have played, and um, uh, Antiguans have played, and so well, on. Well, Richards and Andy Roberts, absolutely. the first two Antiguans, absolutely fantastic cricketers. Yeah, absolutely. And I think. Uh, I think Antigua's population is about 60,000, Danny. Yeah, so like, it's like a, a tiny, not even the size of a London borough. Exactly. You know, a, a small t- we'd call them a, a big village, a small town in this country. Yeah. Um, we could, if we go back to um, when you were in your pomp, I was watching um, that over that uh, you bowl, some, some bowling you were doing to Brian Close, we heard from earlier on. Eventually, the, the umpire intervened um, and said to you, Michael, that there's enough short pitch bowling. There was criticism, wasn't there? There was, yes, there was lots, genuine criticism lots. about the fact that you were aiming for the body. Attempt to, I don't know whether you were attempting to hurt people. You're certainly not trying to make life comfortable for them. Um, looking back on that now, uh, do, do you think it was justified? They changed the rules eventually, didn't they, to stop West Indies doing what they were doing? Well, they changed the rule, but that should not have stopped any good fast bowler, Danny. They changed the rule to say no more than two balls above shoulder height in any over. Now, why, as a fast bowler, would you want to be bowling balls above shoulder height? You're not going to get anybody out, Exactly. So... Those rules should never have effect, effect uh, have any effect on any good fast bowler. But going back to whether we thought it was justified or not, what we did then, people are doing now. England played four fast bowlers against Australia in, in 2005, won the Ashes, and they were praised high waters. You know, oh, down, remember, Downing Street. Ham, yeah, Harmison bowler bounced and hit Ricky Ponting on his face, and the entire Lords cheered. When the West Indies did it, oh, we are brutal. And that's spoiling the game. That's not cricket. We, perhaps we were just up before our time. Yeah. And we never bowled six bouncers in, in an over. I saw Mornay Markle bowl nine bouncers to Michael Clark in the recent Australia-South Africa series. I worked on the series in South Africa. Nine bouncers in a row. Hit him all over his body. The physiotherapist had to be coming out with spray and all sorts of things. And they said it was fantastic bowling. You lost the 1983 World Cup final, so we'll skim past that if you like. (laughs) And that was followed up. I mean, the reputation of this team uh, of yours in this country, of course, is established because... I mean, of course you were beating India in difficult conditions, winning in Australia, yeah. but there was two series very close together of 10 test matches against <laughs> England. Where And this is an England team with lots of good players, particularly good batsmen. People have yeah. gone on to have reputations and, and MBEs, oh, and yes. you beat them 10-0, 5-5. Five 5-5. Five. <laughs> five five. What, what do you remember about that? Well, those were great days, believe me, because when we were within 5 nil here in England, the people, the supporters here in England, they were on top of the world. They travelled to every test venue throughout the country. I remember a guy called Tony that actually was from Leeds, and he had this big drum because those days the guys could take their musical instruments into the ground, and they had a ball. And we were so happy to see them really enjoying themselves and having such a great time of it. You know, it was just a great feeling for us to know that these guys could enjoy it so much. And yet you decided in the middle of this great run, you know, and I would say if you take out one Packer series where there was politics and stuff, West Indies went 20 years without losing a single series. And when I think about that, I can't think. I'm thinking about the All Blacks and I'm thinking about 
teams that say they've got a dynasty and a legacy. I don't think any sports team, and correct me if I'm wrong, help me, because you must have thought uh, that. Well, I'll correct you about the 20 years, yeah. because All it right. was 15 years, actually. We, we lost that same series when I kicked out the stumps. We lost that series in, in New Zealand, 1-0. Okay. All right. But from 1975 to, ni- to 1995, we one lost series. one series. Right. From from 81 to 95, 15 years, we never lost at all. Can you think of any other sports There's no that, other that, sports that's team. ever been dominated by? There is no other sports team or sporting personality that is, has dominated their sport the way we did. Michael, we've talked a lot about the West Indies and the great players you played with, but of course, um, at the back of all that, you also were an international cricketer in that you played first-class cricket in several countries in New Zealand. Yeah. Australia, and for a long time over here. When I uh, put out on Twitter the fact that I was talking to you, one of the very first questions of the thousands that people responded to and said were asking, somebody said, when you played club cricket in the Lancashire Leagues for Rishton in 1981, ask him if that's the coldest condition in which he's ever played cricket. <laughs> I had to ask you. Danny, when I arrived in Lancashire at Rishton, the first week we were supposed to have a game, we couldn't play. It was snowed off. <laughs> Wilf Woodhouse, who was the chairman of Richland at the time, met me with a nice, heavy, thick winter coat and some gloves because I hadn't come prepared for that. And when our game was snowed off, he decided we'd drive over to East Langs to watch their game, but not necessarily just to watch their game because he knew Andy Roberts was playing over there and Andy and myself were so close. So it, we went over there. East Langs, a richer club than Richland, they had good covers and a fantastic level ground and that sort of a thing. They had the snow as the boundary. <laughs> okay. It was unbelievable. I, I, I thought to myself, what am I doing here? I'm guessing that your first ever trip to this country would have been in 1976, yes. where you must have got a very, very inaccurate <laughs> idea of what the weather in this country was exactly. like. Exactly. Because it was like, but, but it was like ke- the Caribbean or the Caribbean for the whole the whole summer, wasn't it? Yeah, well, I came back in 1980, but yeah. 1980 wasn't that bad. We, we had quite a bit of rain in 1980 in that series, but it wasn't as cold no. as you could have expected. But when I came back for the Lancashire League in 81, I arrived in April. Oof. Because the touring teams never came here in April. No, 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 no. I mean, you played in, for, for Lancashire for a little while. Um, I played a few games yeah, for few Lancashire. Games, yeah. yeah, when I was at Richton. Yeah. Because it was, was weekend cricket, I played some midweek games for, for Lancashire. And I enjoyed that. I enjoyed both, really. The Lancashire League with Richton because yeah. I met some great people in Richton. And I used to see them every time we had, there was a test match at Old Trafford. We used to go up there and they would come down to Did Old Trafford. Did you bowl off your full run up and as fast as you could in the Lancashire Leagues? Well, no, because the conditions wouldn't allow. I bowled off pretty close to my full run-up, but the conditions wouldn't allow it to run in and bowl fast. It was always wet, Danny. Okay. I played on one ever dry pitch in the <laughs> Lancashire League. It was always wet, so, so you, you couldn't really... You couldn't run in that no, kind of no, pace. No. No. But in, in, in most of the time, though, here, you played for a long time at Derby. How did that come about? Yeah, well, I was in Australia when there was an Ashes tour going on. I think it was somewhere around 82, 83, mm-hmm. whatever Ashes tour was around that period. I was playing with Tasmania, I think. Uh-huh. And Dusty Miller, who was at Derby at the time, came to me and said that Derby had asked him to approach me to play county cricket. And I said, Dusty, I, I don't play county cricket because I had been approached from way back in 76 to sign for Sussex. And I told Dusty, Dusty, I don't play county cricket. He said, why? I said, it's too much cricket. I'm not interested in playing that much cricket. You know, so many West Indian guys, Andy Roberts and those guys that had played county cricket, told me how strenuous it was. And 
apparently perhaps went back to them and said, you know, he's not interested. And they said, well, tell him we don't want him to play the entire season. We just need him to play half the number of county games and all the one-day games. So that was the approach that they, they took with me. And they asked me to, to do that. I said, well, Dusty, that sounds a little bit more reasonable. I don't mind doing that. So I, I signed with Derbyshire. And people say, why Derbyshire? Derbyshire because it was Derbyshire who asked. Yeah. <laughs> it's as simple as that. Because Jeff, Jeff Shaw Powell. And, and Dusty uh, and myself yeah. had a very good relationship. We played test cricket against each other. We'd go for dinner together during the test match, which I don't think takes place these days. And we... we Still have a very good relationship. Did you enjoy county cricket? Not really. To be honest, not really. But you know, by by halfway through the season at Derbyshire, we were, we were out of everything. We didn't have a not very a great good team. team no. no. So by halfway through the season, you, you couldn't win anything. We got to the Benz and Hedges finals one year. And if if you're playing and you're not competing, I, you don't have a chance of winning anything. It's not easy. I mean, away from Test Arena, I mean, you also obviously you played for Jamaica. Yeah. You played for uh, Tasmania. You played for Canterbury, Canterbury in New Zealand. New Zealand. Once you were established in the, in the, in the that very high form of the game, d- did you enjoy these other excursions? If I didn't enjoy it, I wouldn't have gone. No. Believe me. I went to Canterbury again because of friendship. John Wright, who was at Derby at the time. New Zealand were touring Australia. And he and Richard Hadley, who played for Canterbury, were going to be away. And they needed somebody to try, try and bolster the team. And Wrighty asked me if I would be interested. I said, Wrighty, sure, why not? So I, I, I went and played for Canterbury. I went to Tasmania because of Jack Simmons from Lancashire. Jack and and Hughes. Um, David. David Hughes. Yeah. They used to play for Tassie before Tassie got recognition. And we were playing um, state, recognised as a state to play in the... Sheffield Shield and when they were first asked to play in the Sheffield Shield Jack came to me and asked me if I would go and play professional cricket play for, for, for Tassie and I said sure because Jack and myself again, and again I almost say had we still have a very good relationship because I don't like to lose friendships No, no. and Jack was pretty much sorting out contracts for me at that time in the last section of the programme, we'll, we'll talk about your life since you gave up first-class cricket. Of course, we yeah. see you in, on television all the time and hear you um, talk about horse racing things. But one thing I must ask you as well, it would be wrong, um, having got one of the great fast bowlers of history in front of me, um, I must ask you about batting. Do you like batting? <laughs> I enjoyed batting, but I didn't waste my energies batting if I didn't have to. But whenever I... I I'm trying to think of you. Were, you. were you one of those big fast bowlers who used to get the occasional 30 or 40 by... I have six test 50s, Daddy. Uh, they, well, I, so, like to sh- I like to boast about that. Yeah. Well, hang on. <laughs> Jimmy Anderson's got one now. Anyone can get a test 50. He won't get five more. <laughs> no, he won't. No, he won't. <laughs> Yeah, you, of course you've got six. To, but of course, let's be fair. You were often coming in when the score was six hundred and seven for five. No, we never, we never got that those scores. I, in my entire career, I can only remember the Westerners team getting six hundred once. We never batted that long. We weren't interested in getting that many runs. No. Once we got three fifty, we thought we were in a very good position. Okay. So you did enjoy batting, though. I yeah? did. And I wh- did. And what was your favourite innings? You could. It doesn't have to be a big one. I say. What was your favourite innings you remember playing? My favourite innings, to be honest, goes way back to nineteen seventy six in Jamaica. Right. Uh, playing against India. India had us in a bit of bother, and Derek Moran and myself put up good partnership together. And I remember hitting Bishen Bedi and some other guys out of the ground, and I enjoyed that innings because. It put us back in a winning position, which, of course, we did win the Test match and then won the series. Okay. Talk to me about the petrol station years. <laughs> yeah. Um, I started that business just about at the second Gulf War. Um, 
but that would probably this is be in, about this is in Jamaica. You have in Jamaica, a yes. petrol station or more than a, one? A petrol a single station. station. A yeah. Shell petrol station. Yeah. Because the, the general manager of Shell, well, we are still very good friends. <clears throat> and I went to him and asked him if it was a good business to get involved sure. in He said, Mike, it's okay, but it's hard work. I said, I don't mind hard work. I also, I, I want to do something. Yeah. So I got this, pet, this petrol station. And believe me, the first nine months of running a petrol station, I was there 18 hours a day for nine months. Mm-hmm. I was falling asleep and going on the way home and that sort of a thing. And, but at the same time, it was challenging, but I enjoyed it. And I look back on that those nine months and think to myself, yeah, you did some hard work, but at least at the end of the day, you achieved something. I had a petrol station for much longer than nine months, of sure. course. But by after nine months, I could then relax a yeah. little bit, get somewhere to manage it more than I was actually spending time there, although I was still there. But the first nine months, 18 hours a day, I was at that station. Are you a celebrity back home in Jamaica? Or are there so many fast bowlers that... <laughs> I'm a celebrity without being a celebrity. Nobody comes up to me and asks me for an autograph in Jamaica. They'll, everybody will shout, hey, Mikey, and you know, you mm-hmm. put out your hand through the car, and everybody knows you. Sure. But no, no one is going to come and bother you. Nobody is going to see at a restaurant and come to you and ask you for an autograph. They see you every day. So it's not something new that they're seeing. It's not something that they think, oh, I need to get his autograph. I might never see him again. Right. Okay. More recently, of course, though, um, where you, uh, where we know you from, I don't, know, I don't know what else you do to keep to, to keep the wall from the door. You're a, a very uh, famous cricket commentator, television, and I know you worked in the radio as well. Yeah. Um, your voice, of course, you have a very good uh, timbre, unlike my sort of uh, nasal whine. Um, <laughs> you got and, and and your accent is very re- uh, both easy to understand, but also very redolent of, of your of your native Caribbean. I have to slow down though, Danny, when I speak. When sure. I'm in this country, I have to slow down a lot. Of course, and I dare say you take some of this, the local slang and twang out of your voice if you're, from where, when you're at home. Yeah. Um, do you enjoy commentating? I mean, Very uh, much. Yeah. I love the job that I do, and I love the people that I work with. The guys that I work with at Sky are a fun, fantastic bunch of guys. We have a very good relationship. And I think that is felt through the microphone. You know, We have such a good relationship, and we enjoy each other's company. We give NASA the same stick sometimes, but at the same time, we enjoy each other's company. I think we, we, we really enjoy it. Because cricket commentary strikes me, and I've done some of it, um, cricket commentary, it's both very difficult because of the length of time involved, but it also gives you fantastic opportunities because you can go off down... I mean, let's be fair, not all cricket is exciting all the time. Yeah. That's not the way the game works. Um, and you can <laughs> go off down, sometimes it's nostalgia, sometimes it's a side issue, yeah. sometimes it's a political issue. There's great opportunities to express yourself in it. Yeah, but I don't find cricket commentary difficult. You know, especially, it might be difficult on radio because I think on radio you have to be a lot more detailed because people can't see it. But on television, the pictures are there already. All you're supposed to be doing is adding to those pictures. So I don't really find it difficult. But when you talk about going off on side issues, I just said sometimes things are a little bit slow. And that is, again, great fun to talk about things of the past or talk about certain issues within the game. Of course, people are seeing the pictures. They are already, you know, nothing exciting happening. So you give them a story about something else. And I enjoy that aspect of it as well. I Depending on who you are on with at the time, it even makes it more fun. And you talk about how, as a player on the pitch, you were a very emotional guy, and we've heard about various outbursts and, yep. and things like that. I don't, I don't think you're quite as hidden as you think you are um, on the television either. I remember the, <laughs> when, when Mohammed Amir, bless him, teenager, um, yes, was sent to, sent to prison for, fi- for fixing, the, you know, for spot fixing. Yeah. Um, 
you, you must know the interview I'm talking about, where you could hardly speak. You were so emotional. I thought you were going to cry. Not really, but I no. felt very, very bad for the young man because I understood the circumstances under which things took place, and I can imagine myself being that young and getting into a, a team and being influenced by people senior to me and people that I look up to and them coming to me and telling me to do certain things. So I felt very, very sorry for him. And, you know, to see that sort of talent being wasted. Danny, you don't get that sort of talent every day. And to see it being wasted that way, I felt very sad for him. Um, along with your time as a commentator, you've also been involved with the ICC. And I know it's, of course, your Sky colleagues um, before, during and after your time as an official in the game, forever <laughs> talking to you about plans. And uh, they, they, they were like using you as a yeah. conduit into, yeah. into the world yeah, cricket yeah. authorities. Did, I mean, enjoy is not the right word. Did you achieve anything uh, when you were being an official? I think so. I think I was a part of the cricket committee. I was a part of the first ever committee that looked into to throwing officially because of people are always looking into throwing. And I remember being in the first ever meeting to discuss particular bowlers and their actions. And Imran Khan was on that committee at the time. And we had a lot of guys who, who were big names in the game in that committee. And I enjoyed that aspect of it. I enjoyed some of the things that we put forward to the ICC and the executive committee and that sort of thing. So I can't say I look back on that and regret it. There are certain things that I regret about it, yes, but I enjoyed being there. The other love of your life, I think, is horse racing. Is oh, that, yes. Yeah. Um, oh, yes. You actually Very live in so. Newmarket, don't yes, you? Yes, yes. Uh, people tell me, because um, <laughs> at least one of my colleagues here at TalkSport, of course, is a minor trainer um, at Newmarket, that you ought to be seen on the gallops early in the morning sometime. Every morning with if your I'm binoculars. not working. Yeah? I was there this morning before I came to London. <laughs> what, what, what's the attraction? <laughs> I just love horses. I've always loved horses. First of all, I should make a point. Uh, uh, Jamaicans, ha- they love horse racing. That's a cliche, but it's also true, isn't it? Well, Caymanus Park and Caymanus all Park. But, uh, yeah. well, Jamaica, of all the Caribbean islands, Jamaica yeah. has the most most horse racing. Yeah, they love it. They, yeah. they have a hundred and odd meetings every year. One track, but it's dirt. It's not turf like here that right. can get chewed up and that sort of thing. So they have a lot of racing. I used to own horses in Jamaica. But my love for horses started from when I was a kid because my brother, who is older, five years older than I am, his godmother owned the horses. So whenever he went to the racetrack or went to the stables, I went with him. So that's where my fascination with horses started. But then I got the opportunity to meet Michael Stout in 1985. And we have become very good friends. And I pretty much live in his back pocket these days. <laughs> Every day when I'm not working on a cricket match, I'm on the st- at the stables or on the heath with him. Have you ever ridden a horse? Not a race horse. I, I sat on Crebensis. I don't know how many people remember that horse, Crebensis, who Michael Stout trained as a flat horse, who then did hurdles and won the champion hurdle. Mm-hmm. I sat on Crebensis. And as a matter of fact, I think it's my first book or perhaps my second book. I think it's my first book. There's a picture of me sitting on Crebensis in that book. Uh, and what I say, apart from the fascination, what, what, what do you get? I mean, are you a gambling man? Uh, yes, yeah, you, yes, you I am, the, but enjoy. that's not my primary purpose. You just love the I animals love, and the racing. I love racing, and I love the early mornings. When I was a kid, my mother used to tell me, you have to get up early to study. Never did. I get up early every morning. This morning, they pulled out at quarter to six. I was there at, at 20 to six. How many other people are there, Michael? Is there a lot of people or a handful or just you? You have, you have some people on the gallops, yes. You have the work, people there working of because they're work spotting, watchers. Yeah. You, yeah. They work for the racing post or work for other racing organisations. Mm-hmm. But I am constant at Michael Stowe's yard. You'll have managers for horses. You'll have owners, a few owners that will come every now and again. 
and manage, managers for stud farms that will come different times. But I am, I am constant. I am there every day. And he expects me to be, to be there. <laughs> um, that's it for this edition of My Sporting Life with Michael Holding. My genuine thanks to Michael for coming in and being such great company over the last two hours. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have doing it, because if you have, you've had a ball. So big thanks to both Danny Kelly and Michael Holding for the last 90 minutes or so. Don't forget, we'll be releasing weekly episodes of the My Sporting Life series with big names such as Matthew Hayden, Sir Kirtley Ambrose and Sir Andrew Strauss all to come. As well as this, the Cricket Collective returns next week. Neil Manthorpe and Steve Harmison looking back at the uh, Bob Willis Trophy final and hearing from uh, both Joe Root and Joss Butler as well as Tamar Mills as the England team fly out to, to Dubai uh, via Amman for the T20 World Cup. So keep a, an eye out for that. But uh, that's about it for this uh, show. Thanks for listening to Following On. The following on podcast is proudly sponsored by Barbados Tourism. And this is your gentle reminder that Barbados is the best place to be a cricket fan. With eight matches from the ICC Men's T20 Cricket World Cup Series taking place in Barbados this summer, including the final, you can experience the summer of a lifetime by booking today. Aside from immersing in world-class cricket in the sunshine, Barbados is the dream destination for all travel enthusiasts. It is where adventure meets paradise, the culinary capital of the Caribbean, and better still, the birthplace of rum. If you're keen to unite with cricket fans across the globe for what is set to be an unforgettable summer, then head to visitbarbados.org forward slash cricket today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 